I'll be honoring Lady Olivia Robertson of the Fellowship of Isis, Lane Redman, author of When the Drummers Were Women, Lydia Rule, artist and author, journalist and author Margot Adler, Lorian Vignet of Isis Oasis, uh, Ash Fidel Long, Deborah Moore, Isaac Bonowitz, and several others. So please, uh, as is customary this time of year, tune in and avail yourself of the wisdom of these way showers to whom we owe so much. Their voices and work live on here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. I also want to thank those of you who attended my birthday party and part three of the four Power of Partnership talks uh, at the Museum of Woman slash Goddess Temple uh, of Orange County uh, a few weeks ago in August. You might know I am an official partnership practitioner with Rianne Eisler, Center for Partnership Studies, and I gave the third in the series of talks. Uh, partnership with your local and global community. And uh, if you missed those, uh, or this is the first time you're hearing of it, parts uh, one through three, uh, all installments are up on YouTube. Uh, Now, this Sunday, I'll be giving the final installment, a partnership with Source, Goddess, Nature, whatever you call the great she. Uh, We'll be talking about spiritual courage, uh, and that, too, will be on my YouTube for listeners outside Southern California area, and I know there are a lot of you across the globe. And finally, uh, I'm giving a talk October 2nd at the Pagan Pride Day event in Long Beach, California. I'll be uh, talking about the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet as deity, archetype, and ideal. I'll get into the disinformation about her and uh, why she's such a relevant goddess, helping us to set healthy boundaries and all the rest. Uh, So come out to Pagan Pride in Long Beach on October 2nd. Uh, My talk, I believe, is from 2 to 3, and then I'll be at the author's table uh, signing books, and uh, we can chat a little bit more one-on-one if uh, that's uh, of interest to you. Uh, come hear all the great speakers. Take part in the fun activities and rituals and vendors that are planned for the day. Also, bring some canned goods uh, because they always um, collect canned goods for uh, needy families for the uh, food pantries uh, in L.A. And also, um, after my interview, I hope you'll stay tuned uh, because I want to chat with you about a wonderful movie I saw just recently. It's one of those independent films. uh, It's called The Complete Unknown, uh, starring Rachel Weisz. And you might remember her. She uh, played Hypatia in the movie Agora. Um, anyway, I, I, uh, I want to tell you about that movie. If uh, you uh, have indie films in your area, I would highly encourage you to look it up. Um, it, shoot, it may even be on Netflix or something like that. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I want to tell you about it because I think it's one you uh, will most definitely want to search out and, uh, and see for yourself. Um, So, uh, that all being said, uh, with tonight's announcements out of the way, uh, I will now turn to tonight's show. I have returning for an encore as Dr. David Hillman, uh, as beloved as he is controversial. I have to say David ranks up there as one of your favorite guests because he's not afraid to speak truth to power. He's a goddess advocate, a feminist, an ally in the fight against the powers that would silence us, dominate us, exploit us, and 
keep us slaves, and as such, he's ruffled more than a few feathers in academia and the status quo. Even some radical feminists who uh, have in the past been annoyed with him uh, for speaking truth and saying there's research out there that they're missing that points to women's empowerment in ancient times. Uh, so if uh, this is the first time you're hearing David, I'm telling you, he is going to cover some topics and say some things you may have never heard anyone else have the courage to say, uh, maybe some things you wish people would say, but they don't have the guts. Uh, if you've heard David on past shows, uh, and you can find him in the archives, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And I encourage new listeners to put David Hillman's name in the search box and go back into our past interviews and listen in. I promise you will not be disappointed. And uh, just to make the point, uh, Warrior Goddess, I chose that opening uh, because of uh, of him and what we're going to talk about and what he's going to uh, share with us and tell us the battle he has been up against, and, um, and I think he's probably winning. So, David, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. I really appreciate it. Well, um, tonight's topic, uh, the subject is, you know, the, the, the theme we've sort of chosen is a little bit nebulous. Uh, what does the ancient Sibyl say about your vote? Um, kind of an odd show topic, but uh, we will come round full circle and it'll all make sense uh, in the end. Um, David, I, I want to, uh, you know, for listeners who maybe uh, don't know you uh, as well as some of our regulars, I want to share your bio and then uh, then we'll jump right in. Is that okay with you? Hey, that's great. Okay, so Dr. David Hillman, he earned his Ph.D. in classics along with an M.S. in bacteriology from the University of Wisconsin. His Ph.D. committee censored his dissertation, but Dr. Hillman published the material as uh, a book titled The Chemical Muse, Drug Drug Use and Roots of Western Civilization with St. Martin's Press in 2008. The book went on to inspire a History Channel documentary on the subject of evolution of drug use from the ancient to the modern world titled The Stoned Ages. The London Times uh, called Dr. Hillman's research the last wild frontier of classics. Dr. Hillman has published on such controversial subjects such as uh, the history of child rape in the early Christian church, ancient, ancient priestesses, and the act of sacred sodomy and the peculiar identity of Jesus' naked boy companion. I think that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Inside Higher Education uh, published an article on David Hillman titled Fired Over a Phallus. The article discusses his termination following a 2015 performance of Seneca's Medea at St. Mary's University of Minnesota in which the chorus he advised famously pointed handheld penises, uh, fascina, I think is how it's uh, what they're called in Latin, uh, pointing these penises at audience members while chanting, quote, greed stains your soul with the stench of ruin, unquote. 
Dr. Hillman believes he was fired for doing his job, teaching classics, and is quick to point out that the ancient Greek word for free speech denotes not what you are free to say, but but what you are obliged to say in the defense of liberty. Dr. Hillman is currently working to reconstruct what was by far the most popular song of pagan Roman antiquity, the song of the Sibyl of uh, Kume. Am I saying that uh, right, David? Kume? Kume is fine. I would say Kume, but people say it different ways. Okay. Uh, And David believes it is an accurate depiction of the power of wealth to corrupt society. Um, And there are uh, articles you can find online about this um, situation uh, he uh, found himself in at uh, St. Mary's uh, University in Minnesota. So, David, we have a lot to talk about. Um, Do you want to sort of start at the beginning? You know, what is a university? Why do we need them? I mean, beyond the obvious, of course. Uh, You know, what, what are we missing? What have we forgotten uh, you know, kind of like what you were saying, um, you know, the Greeks, uh, you know, talk about free speech isn't just what you are free to say, but what you're obliged to say. I, I kind of get the feeling we've forgotten what the university is really supposed to be. Right, right, exactly. And that's, uh, there's a trend in modern universities toward uh, the authority of business as the kind of driving edge of education. And um, this is what uh, educators are finding themselves uh, up against. It's a ceiling, and it's kind of a, um, it's a real danger. That's, uh, and the only reason I'm even talking about this is because, you know, history is always cyclical, and you see things over and over again. And the voices out there, there, there were some feminine voices out there that nobody seems interested in, but these feminine voices in, in antiquity were the voices that captured things like the university. They called it the museum, but it was the, uni- it was the seed of the university. And they also captured ideas like democracy, and they constantly sang, these female voices constantly sang about uh, the value of overcoming tyranny in order to preserve liberty. And um, it's just amazing that we classicists and we modern scholars tend not to focus on these valuable points uh, of uh, our history, and it all feeds into the university. Uh, um, Why aren't we allowed to speak freely at the university now? Um, And that's kind of one of the issues that I wanted to address via our study of the ancient world. Yes. Okay. Well, and, and, you know, what what I'm thinking as I'm hearing you say that, uh, let me talk a little bit about ancient, then we'll go contemporary. You know, I mean, um, it, I, I think sometimes it's lost that these sibyls or these priestesses had such power and influence. I know oftentimes when you hear feminists talk, and this is why some of them, you know, have gotten, you know, annoyed with you, um, you know, they paint the ancient world as a time when women were, for the most part, powerless, but you're saying, you know, they didn't really look in the right places. They've missed some things uh, where women, um, you know, in in positions such as, uh, you know, priestesses and sibyls were, in fact, uh, you know, the powerful fighting against tyranny, which, um, which makes me think about um, another reason why, you know, patriarchy was so keen on squashing the feminine. 
you know, because it was the feminine that was in opposition to them, uh, you know, uh, dominating, controlling. And uh, so, you know, therein maybe lies one reason, um, you know, why why patriarchy wanted to, you know, do away with the pre-patriarchal myths, you know, taint them uh, with, uh, you know, with a patriarchal flavor that gave uh, some people license to dominate over other people and such. And, and, and for listeners who don't know about what is happening in contemporary universities, I mean, aside from the fact we have like Jerry Falwell's uh, universities, which, um, you know, are, are an embarrassment. We have other universities that uh, are desperate for money. They let people like the Koch brothers uh, tell them what professors they can hire and what um, curriculum is going to be taught. And, I, I mean, I, I know that from uh, interviewing Richard Wolff. Uh, for instance, you know, they won't let, um, you know, e- economists talk about socialism, for instance. And people like the Koch brothers, Others want uh, um, academia to talk about uh, conservative economics rather than, you know, giving students a more well-rounded um, education about, uh, you know, the real history of economics and other choices that are out there. I mean, it's skewed toward an agenda uh, of people who are out there not looking out for our interests, but out there to dominate us. And, you know, they're taking over the, uh, you know, the minds of our kids. And, you know, in universities was, were supposed to be where kids went to expand their mind, not be put into little boxes. Well, and that's, that's exactly why I was fired. I was fired for challenging a business agenda. In other words, through Seneca, I was, I was portraying the lines of Seneca himself, who speaks against greed and about the dangers of greed for the corruption of society. And so as we put this play on, and I was asked to, to – uh, I was contracted, actually, to please make it as historically accurate as possible. We challenged, via Seneca, we challenged – unknowingly our own leadership and they didn't care about any moral standards or ethical standards that wasn't the question the the question was the fact that we were challenging greed that we were saying greed is a vice that greed is not something that you can conjoin with education and still have education you either have a university or you have a business and unfortunately we're at a time in history when business is now becoming the education. And the problem with that is you no longer have free speech. Well, tenured tenured professors are uh, worried about, I guess, either losing tenure or maybe not getting tenure if they teach things that – the corporate-oriented university now uh, doesn't feel – uh, is their agenda? I mean, would, would that be a good way to say it? Yes, it very much is. And the religious schools, the private schools, because I taught at a private university um, that, that is uh, supported by the Catholic Church, uh, specifically the brothers of uh, uh, the saint, Jean-Baptiste de La Salle. And to be honest, I believe a much better, a much better image of them would be uh, not not following the ways of John Baptiste, but of sodomizing John Baptiste, because they are using his name and his teaching to profit themselves at the expense of the poor. Which his argument was, hey, uh, we ought to be educating the poor, and I think that's great. 
Um, but they don't yeah. want to embrace this be- because they're for-profit institutions. And this is a, th- when you have the collapse of the museum like this, tyranny always strides in and takes over. Yeah, and when you say museum, you're using that as uh, you know another word for the, for the university for academia. Yeah, museum. Let's be serious. Museum is just the ancient word for university. But what people don't understand is a museum was cultivated cre- and created and and fostered by women, by the muses, by the very things that the Greeks worshipped through the oracles. And why that was so important, why it was that we trust teenage priestesses over tyrants. Okay. And now for, for listeners who, you know, maybe have forgotten their Greek or maybe it wasn't something they, you know, maybe they slept through it, you know, in grade school. You're talking about um, Seneca's Medea. Uh, that was a play that, that you were, uh, like you said, you were contracted to participate in to make it historically accurate. When you say Correct. Seneca's Museum, who is Seneca? Is Seneca one well, of the ancient writers? Seneca was a Roman philosopher, and he's writing under Nero, who, if, if you want the classic definition of a tyrant, it's Nero, right? And Seneca was a Stoic, so he had some real moral problems with dealing with Nero and how exactly to deal with a tyrant. How do you deal with a tyrant once he's, once he's gained total power? So Nero writes in his plays all about tyranny. They're, they're, uh, the, heart, and the heart of them is, is the power of an ancient religion, that is Etruscan in roots. And this religion taught that there were female forces throughout history that influenced humanity for the positive. And that if humanity plugged itself into these female voices, that they would be guided in a beneficent way, in an honorable and beneficent way. But if they chose not to, that they would follow greed. And the result of greed would be violence, uh, civil strife, um, and ultimately uh, war, civil war and, and universal war. That's what they, they – these are, so, and, go ahead. Well, and I was going to say, so, so this was written back then um, as sort of uh, to counter the tyranny that the people were experiencing at the time under Nero. Right, right. This is, this is Seneca's attempt, but the oracles are acting. These are priestesses, ancient priestesses. They're acting throughout history. We've got people like Cicero who goes to the oracle and asks her for his – when he's deciding to go into politics, he asks her for his advice. You wouldn't know of Socrates if it were not for the oracle at Delphi that pronounced him to be the wisest Athenian. You'd never have heard of Socrates otherwise. These are, the, these are the types of history that are in the text. They're in these ancient texts. But due to whatever reason, whether or not we just, we just don't want to be involved with them or they don't say the things that we, we, we want them to say, we kind of bury them. And that's a game. That's a game that academics play. And what I'm saying is just go back to the text. Look at what's happened historically. Look at what's happened and ask yourself, how does that reflect on what's going on now? Right, right, because here we are, history is just repeating itself, you know, as we see ourselves here in the United States. Uh, we fool ourselves pretending we live in a democracy because we really live in an oligarchy and corporations are the tyrants. Um, correct, correct, so- and correct. And if I can't teach, Karen, if, that's exactly correct. And if I can't teach Seneca 
to your children, to your to 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 our children, to our offspring, then because of the corporate agenda, because it doesn't fit their agenda, that's uh, that's uh, that's not liberty, is it? No, no, it isn't. And I, I find, uh, you know, I, I think I look. I always knew things were bad out there, but I don't think I realized how bad they were in terms of uh, how they want to manipulate our mind and manipulate everything that goes on, uh, you know, in in in, in our, uh, you know, in our in our world. Until I saw what happened uh, in the presidential campaign this year. You know, when I saw how even people who I thought I could trust, like Rachel Maddow you know, who were really just corporate pawns, you know, promoting an agenda that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, wasn't unbiased, you know, because you you think, uh, I mean, we, we delude ourselves, or I should say I deluded myself thinking that uh, certain news outlets uh, were unbiased and we could get uh, you know, information from them that wasn't trying to manipulate us. Um, but uh, I, I realize now that there are fewer and fewer, you know, maybe, you know, there's less than a dozen, uh, you know, commentators or journalists out there that we can actually count on to give us the truth and not the corporate spin. You know, um, I used to just think it was Fox News, but it's not. You know, it's not. It's CNN. It's it's MSNBC. It's um, uh, you know, it, it's a lot of the outlets out there that we thought we could trust. We really can't trust, and we're seeing it everywhere now. I I don't even think they're trying to hide it anymore. You know, um, it it it's just uh, it, uh, it it has me demoralized, quite frankly. Well, I I don't want you to think that you're alone historically because that was the. That was the central point of these oracles, um, and you see this over and over again in their ancient pronouncement, and that is that uh, humanity is doomed due to its greed, and that its greed, any, any, any form, uh, they even had a saying, uh, all forms of evil, all forms of things that are bad come from the desire for profit, and Jesus actually quoted that. He, would, he, was, uh, he picked up on that, and, and, and you get the popular common uh, modern phrase, uh, you know, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. But the oracles constantly taught that, that once you go down the path of greed, you lose things like truth in your society. It doesn't matter what the yeah. facts are anymore, right? It doesn't matter. It's what this person says or that person says. And what's funny, Karen, and this, this part may blow your mind, is when things got bad, these priestesses would react as if they were augmenting the tyranny itself. They would say, you deserve tyranny. They had this strange belief that the world deserved punishment. Once it tilted over the scale and made greed its goal, that it then deserved the rise of a tyrant to bring total collapse to society. Isn't that strange? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it it makes me think about what some people are saying, that uh, maybe we deserve to have Donald Trump. You know, maybe it's going to take a lot more people, you know, much more uncomfortable to swing the pendulum back in the right direction, you know. Um, well, and, I mean, well, and they I, mean have I know their, I'm not going to vote for him, but. <laughs> <laughs> they have their, they, we have our finger on the power of Prometheus, and that was the power of fire, the, the power to destroy the world. And in that great myth, the, this is actually an Etruscan tradition, that power of Prometheus was a symbol that humanity would gain its own technology 
to destroy itself. And Zeus, Zeus, the leader of the Greek pantheon, said, no, 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 you cannot give mortals fire. You can't give them fire or they'll destroy the earth itself. <laughs> and so, and, they, and in the Etruscan version, he says, because mortals refuse to stop from crossing boundaries. They always have to consume more and more. And it makes you wonder if those ancients understood something about human nature and how history works that we either have forgotten or we're not teaching or we're not studying. Well, you know, I think there's just so much arrogance and so much greed. I mean, there used to be a, that saying, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, if we don't know history, we're, you know, we're, if we don't pay attention to history, we're doomed to repeat it. But I don't I guess anybody takes that, uh, you know, too seriously anymore. Right, and I think that's a real problem because you can see as one of the big things that people have that the administration objected about, and I can't talk about particulars, but I can tell you they didn't like the fact that we used a phallus. And we actually had to have, I tried to have a debate. I tried to engage them and say, let's look at the evidence. And the answer was absolutely not. We were actually silenced and told, no, you will not discuss this. So we were told we could not, I could not discuss historical texts in class or talk about ancient art in class and I was told in front of students and myself and students that or they were told that I was incorrect and that they couldn't ask any more questions about that subject I was amazed so all right, so let's, you know, um, I think maybe we're, we we need to give a little bit more explanation to the audience because I know what happened, you know what happened, but I think maybe some people might be scratching their heads. So so this idea, so you had the, the, the young women in the play um, who, were, who were portraying priestesses? They were playing the Furies. There was a chorus of Furies and a couple of Medeas, an older and a younger Medea. And and so they are. They have these, um, you know, these uh, pseudo phalluses uh, in their hands, and they're shaking them at the audience. Um, why don't you fill in the blank and say what they do, say what they did and and how that was authentic authentic to history and what was the meaning of it? Okay, so we we put on an ancient tragedy. It was Seneca's Medea. And at the beginning of the play, we had what was called a procession. In the ancient world, before every tragedy, you have this procession. And it's always very formulaic because it's a religious procedure. And that's what I try to teach my students. The play that you're putting on is a religious procedure if it's ancient. It's not a theatrical spectacle. So we had the procession. And in the procession in antiquity, they would carry a giant eight-foot phallus that's an erect penis. And they would carry small handheld phalluses and, and even necklaces. There were, were jewelry with this stuff and everything. And it's all over. And so they would carry these things into town. And the point of waving the phallus was that the tragedy that you were about to see was a judgment. It was a form of catharsis. It was a form of ritual purification, whereby Athens or wherever the thing was produced they would be purged of their ills, of their spiritual ills. And what kind of spiritual ills are those? Greed, ambition, hatred, violence. That they would be purged of these things by watching this. And that's why they pointed the phallus in your face and shook it in your face. This is your judgment. This is what you need to get rid of. 
And so then they would have the performance. Well, we did the same thing, and I had the line introduced uh, of greed stains your soul with a stench of ruin. I, I took that from uh, – uh, that was inspired by lines of the Furies. And so uh, because of that, they knew the message that, that the play was sending to them wouldn't mesh. And I was even told afterwards. So we, we had performances, and the play went on. Um, and they t- after they took out the prop, censored the prop, and one of the statues, et cetera, et cetera, the play went on anyway. And we were told it was the best thing that St. Mary's had ever uh, had ever produced. And we had we had very good audiences, and we got great great uh, great uh, discussions. And in one of these discussions after the play, I was even told, you know, I'll be surprised if you don't get fired for doing this. And voila, a few. Uh, weeks later, I was fired. Um, so, so now, so now, David. So you didn't have these young women shake phalluses at uh, at at uh, you know the high the higher ups of the university for shock value. I mean, this was this was authentic historical uh, enactments. I mean, was this a form of sympathetic magic in a sense? I mean, was it the shaking of the penises? Is that what was supposed to purge the city or? De- definitely, it's actually based upon a binding curse from an ancient spell, from an ancient uh, uh, Greek fragment. So this is this, that was. So it definitely is magic. Did I point it at any particular person? No, no, no. They just pointed at the whole audience, and we had mm-hmm. priests sitting there. We had priests sitting there. Uh, there was a great monsignor that was there who saw the play and loved it and told everybody the morality of this play is the morality of Christianity. And we should be we should be doing, it. but um, you know there were also administrators in the audience, and and uh, uh, people on boards, and um, lawyers, and those people didn't like the fact that the message was focused against this, saying hey this thing about earning profit, it may be causing your society serious problems. That was the right, message that they right. didn't they didn't like. Okay, and and so do you think part of it was? I mean, granted that I can understand they don't like the message. You know, they're the people that are part of the problem. Uh, but do you think what also was at play here was simply, um, you know, it, it, you know, ancient people didn't have the sexual hang-ups that. Uh, you know that that Christians do today. You know, I mean, with all the sexual taboos. Do you think the fact that you know it, it was just too shocking for them to see a penis, uh, and especially held in young girls' hands? Um, I mean, I, I can imagine. You know, if uh, if any of them w- it was their daughters doing it, uh, they might have they might have freaked out. You know, except the young girls who were doing it were livid about the fact that the administration was trying to stop them. They were livid because they had read the play. They had understood the play. We had table talks where I sat with them and the director, and we talked about the historical background. We talked about everything from ancient magic to uh, women in pharmacy and how women created the first drugs, and they were all had to do with their menstruation and their menstrual cycle and why that was important for them to control what, why they had abortifacients in antiquity and what the, what the women taught about that. So we, t- we went into real depth because that's all in Seneca. There's elements of that throughout Seneca. And so the students were livid that administration had decided that, that, uh, that this was, um, Taboo, that this was yeah, inappropriate. That- 
Well, well, yeah. I mean, it's it's just further censorship of the things women need to know to be uh, an empowered gender, you know. Uh, but but I would be willing to bet, aside from the fact that these these act these um, you know these these people didn't like the message and uh, the potential, uh, you know, I, I I think it was just the the optics of it was probably uh, more than they could. Um, swallow because they probably didn't have the educational background to know what you know what the girls knew what you knew you know um, I, I wonder was there anything written in the program to explain to them what they were going to see so that maybe they would have uh, understood the metaphor or the, oh. the reenactment of the magic well, we had to submit the play, the script, and uh, notes to the to the administration a year in advance. So they had the play way and they well in advance. It. They knew everything so they that was going it. to happen. They approved it, and not only that, but they guaranteed my contract that they would respect my integrity as an academic and as a translator to be able to adapt the play. And and they didn't. And, and, and I'm telling you, Karen, there the penises were no problem with anyone. The penises were no problem with anyone. It was the message. Having a group of students talk to the American populace and say, look, your uh, money-driven agenda is destroying our society, including our justice system, our educational system, and our political system. Yeah, yeah. That, that message was too strong. And it happens that the, the hero of the play is a woman. And it happens that, yes, she is a witch. And it happens that she slaughters both of her children in the end of, of the play as an abortion, as, a, as a, a sign of an abortion that society has become. Her husband is so drawn to his greed that he turns from his family. And then he, 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 he takes upon himself something that no honorable human being would do. So there's this extreme sense of... of of feminine revenge and justice. And what is so important is that Seneca robbed that from the Etruscans. He mined that from the Etruscans with their tradition of these sibyls, who, by the way, practiced on the Vatican Hill. Before This is before Christianity. So right, you can right. go, back, go back to 800, 700 B.C., and you'll find this. Okay. Well, um, well. so you find yourself embroiled in this, and I don't want you to say more than you uh, can safely say with a lawsuit uh, pending and everything, because right. you, you haven't been able to work since they fired you, correct? I mean, you've been... Uh, no, that's, you know, that's you, correct. You know. No. I won't be able to because of the stain of, of what they said about me, what they said in uh, the news. I won't be able to uh, recover, and that's why... I'm turning down any sort of um, – I can't tell you particulars of the case, but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what's not going to happen. I won't take a settlement. This is not about money, and I told my students this. This is not about money. This is about free speech. And if we, if we turn our backs when someone can't speak freely, then we don't have free speech anymore. It's, it doesn't exist. And so that's why we want to take this ultimately um, to a judge uh, who can look at the evidence and can say, yes, uh, this is a constitutional issue, and I will not allow their attorneys to approach me and say, oh, well, here, sir, take uh, this 1.1 million and walk away from this. Uh, no, I'm sorry. This, 
uh, free speech is not about 1.1 million. You don't have enough money to buy off your free speech. Right. Well, and um, well, once this is resolved, and it seems like uh, you know, I mean, in assuming it goes in your favor, um, do you think you'll still forever be tainted and um, unemployable as a as a professor again? Well, I will take. I can tell you this, Karen, from the testimony that we have right now. Um, I will take some kind of write up of this trial, and I will put it in my CV and say, here I am. I stood up for free speech, and I uncovered what you heard about being uncovered here. And I, if you want me on your faculty to somebody that you know is not going to, to sit down to the corporations, then have me. But uh, if you want to keep going down a way of restriction, that's great. So I'm going to use it. I'm, I'm going to use it to the best. Uh, look, Karen – when the History Channel came out with that documentary, I, it opened up a whole new area that people were, people were saying, wow, what is this? Look at all the drugs in antiquity. Look, you mean they're this common and people were using drugs? Yes, as a matter of fact, they were. And the reason that we know that is because we are free to research that. Now, what about women? And why is it that all of the earliest pharmacy in the ancient world goes back to women? What is this about? Why is it that women are inventing the world's earliest drugs? And why is it that they're creating democratic standards long before anybody else is? You know, why isn't anybody looking at the power of the female voice? To me, that's what the, the ancient world recognized, the power of the muse, the power of inspiration. And they realized and constantly taught and, and composed poetry that said, hey, when you give up your devotion – to the muse, and you run after what's expedient. You do what's good for you and what's going to make you wealthy and what's going to, and what's going to make you have the bigger this or the, or the more land, et cetera, et cetera. In their time, it was the more sheep, right? But it's the same thing today. And they said if you're willing to give up and sacrifice your inspiration, you deserve the tyrants that you're getting. Right, right. No, I, uh, I, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I, uh, I come from Louisiana, and um, I always looked, you know, always wondered, I mean, it's the most toxic state uh, in the Union, you know. Uh, they have, they just let the oil and gas companies run rampant. I mean, cancer is uh, rampant, uh, but because uh, people want jobs, they just let oil and gas companies do whatever they want, you know, uh, right. you know, no, regu no regulation. They just uh, – I mean, at some point, people have to say enough is enough. You know, people have to have courage to say, you know, I'm not going to let you kill me, for heaven's sake. You know, I'm not going to let you take away my liberty, my freedom, my free speech. Um, and, and if they don't, then, um, you know, I guess we deserve the world we live in. And that's exactly what the ancient message was. If you don't fight for liberty when you know it's at stake, well, then you better be happy with the tyranny that you get. And that was that, was that feminine voice saying that from the ancient world. And, Karen, the, you know, I, was, I like to listen to Christian radio. I like to listen to it because I like to hear some of the ideas that are coming out of it. And I want to tell you, I heard a, I heard a sermon about an entire sermon – just last week on finances and on righteous financing, whatever that is, and, and, and how God wants you to be 
to have money, and he wants you to have prosperity, and he wants you to have success. And this was apparently a popular enough minister that this was national. And what is hilarious is he was quoting a text that I know he hasn't read in the Greek, because in the Greek it says, the desire for profit is the root of all evil. And I know the guy is – I'm just astounded that the things that the ancient prophets said, these ancient priestesses, they said, you will buy anything, anything in the face of liberty. You'll sell your liberty if, it, if it's going to count for one more coin. If you're going to get one more coin out of it, you'll sell your liberty. And that's, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of what Seneca was trying to say, too. I mean, I just feel kind right. of like this, this is history over and over and over again. Only this time yeah. we've, got enough, we've got enough power to destroy everything. Well, yeah, and, 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 but also, too, you know, we have, uh, I, I mean, look at the people who rallied behind Bernie Sanders. And, you know, and I really believe people are tired of the 1%. They're tired of the greed, you know. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess this is, I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this is what an evolution looks like. You know, um, I'm, I'm hoping that as things become more transparent, uh, you know, with the Internet, with, you know, uh, cases like yours. I mean, look how they're standing up against, um, you know, the, the pipeline in, uh, where, where is it, North Dakota. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I think, you know, uh, average people are done. You know, they're, they're done. And uh, I think the millennials are ready to, to fight for a better life. And that's, you know, just like your young students, you know, who were appalled. And, you know, when they understood, uh, you know, the, their real Christian history. And uh, I think that's why you had so much support and they were behind you because, you know, the world as it is right now is not the world they want to live in. Right, and you know, the biggest compliment that I've ever had, uh, ever, was a student who told me that at the end of that semester, the semester I was fired, she said, uh, you, she wrote it down, actually, on a little paper and gave it to me. She said, thank you very much for all the, all the encouragement, and by the way, you taught me more about Catholicism than anybody ever has, and she's an extremely devout Catholic, and she did that for one reason, because we sat down one time, and we talked about the Virgin Mother, and what that ancient image was, and how the early Christians viewed the Virgin Mother. And just from that conversation alone of talking about how the pagans talked about the Virgin Mother and how the early Christians talked about the Virgin Mother, she learned something about not only her, herself, but her character in the play that she was, that she was uh, portraying. And that's education. When you're able to take knowledge See how it's formed and apply that reasoning in another place. To me, that's what education is really all about. And my, my, Karen, my, my, uh, my recommendations, my, my evaluations are spectacular. And the only reason they're spectacular is because I was able to give my students the raw material. That's all. Mm-hmm. And I was only able to do that so long as I followed the corporate values. As soon as I departed from the corporate values, I was out. Yeah. And what what well, we have to sacrifice, what we have to sacrifice are the are the uh thoughts and the dreams and the hopes of those students, the the, the very minds of those students in my opinion. 
Right, right. Well, you know, there's that saying, you know, history is written by the conquerors. And, uh, and I mean, I, you know, it's, I think it's not only the conquerors who, uh, you know, who have the most bullets and bombs. You know, now it's the conquerors who have the most money, uh, you know, to buy the universities. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, the, I mean, it used to be greed was one of the seven deadly sins. You know, I, I, I wonder if there, there's uh, any form of Christianity. Christianity that even teaches that anymore, you know. I, I would imagine maybe, you know, uh, but we all, you also have those these other, you know, groups of Christians who are um, or marrying uh, economics and Christianity, uh, right. you know, uh, like like you described to um, to rationalize this predator capitalism that we have out there, exactly. you know. Exactly. And, and if you're and if you're poor, you know that's your, you know, if, if you know you're you're somehow, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it's it's not just that you're lazy, you know. God isn't smiling down on you, you know. It's almost as if you have to have a fat wallet. Uh, you know, to feel like uh, you're a good, you're a good Christian or something. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the way it that's the way it looks to me on the outside looking in. Anyway, you know, the kinds of uh, ideas that people uh, seem to be um, using to justify, um, all, you know, just just all sorts of greed and exploitation. You know, right. it, it, it sure gets the... a... Go ahead. And the facts don't matter when you get to that point. They don't matter. People don't want to hear the facts at that point. They want to hear whatever they want to hear. And people who find out – this is so funny. They did this in the ancient world. All you have to do is find out what somebody wants to hear. Tell them that and then ask them for power, and they'll give it to you. And this is yeah. what's so funny. is you know, the, rhetoric, the rhetoric becomes just used and used and used again. It's, this, it's a it's, – it's, and you know what? Karen, I think this is why the, the word history in Greek, historia, originally meant a question that you propose to an oracle, a question that you ask an oracle. It came to mean history, and it came to also mean a form of inquiry, looking for evidence, right? But originally it was a question that you ask an oracle. So they were concerned from the very beginning, these associations of priestesses, with the very idea of gathering evidence in order to answer a critical question. So you can see how that stream of thought would fight against or would be contrary to a tyrannical stream of thought where fact is totally irrelevant. It's what I feel and, what I, and, and, how, I, and how my mood is that is important. Right, right. Well, and and I'm and you know, and I can't get away from the idea that uh, you know Christianity, which is supposed to be so big on sin, you know, how can it not be a sin to uh, dominate and exploit other people for greed? You know, what? I mean, isn't I mean that's usury? You know. And, um, and and I mean, and those sorts of things, um, you know, used to be used to be sins. But it's it's like you know, the, there's a new narrative now, um, you know, being taught, so that uh, you know they can justify 
uh, everything they do to, uh, you know, uh, so that this income inequality, this income disparity that uh, has so many suffering, the austerity, um, you know, how 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 they can't be, I mean, how can they not be shamed? <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know. Does, does, I, hopefully, hopefully that made sense. You know, it did. And here's the history that is exactly parallels what you're saying. The early church through the apostles taught, and Jesus taught, you have to sell everything. You want to follow him, sell everything, give it up, give it to the poor, have all your money in a common community, so you're buying people the basics like food and clothing, and that's how the Christian community was. Within 100 years, 150 years or so, they had an, a, a, a bishop who was arguing in a book, in an official book, uh, scroll. He was arguing, hey, here's his, here's his argument. Uh, rich men can actually go to heaven. <laughs> and it's an entire book to contradict all that early Christian stuff about rich people go to hell because that's what they were teaching. And St. James, people don't know this because they don't read their Bibles, but St. James was actually thrown off the Temple Mount and died when he hit the ground and then they, they buried him in stones. Because he kept saying, your money is going to burn your soul in hell. <laughs> so how does, that well, mesh with, how does that mesh with the modern movement of let's worship prosperity and God wants us to be prosperous? What is this? And people who aren't prosperous, who have debt, those are bad people, right? And people, people with bad credit, credit ratings, those are bad people, right? Mm-hmm. So well, how do we right. – <laughs> How do, we, how do we come up with, as a society, how did we come up with the idea that greed, that money, that gain, that profit are virtues? And we even say right. that. Uh, you, you see them all the time saying, oh, greed, little greed's not bad, right? right? Oh, that just drives society. Well, that's not what these crazy ancient priestesses said. They said, if you believe and follow your greed, you will destroy yourselves with civil war. Well, Good luck. It, and we're and we're seeing, you know, I mean, not only is it causing suffering to people and with the income disparity, but it's destroying the planet, you know. Um, yeah. Well, uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit because there are a couple other things I wanted to see how these all things all tie in together. Um, yes. You mentioned um, something about uh, holy sodomy. Um, I know uh, if if we don't cover that, my listeners are going to email me and say, "But you forgot the holy sodomy." So tell <laughs> us about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So holy sodomy is just such a concept that anytime you mention this. In a room of scholars, they will uh, not look at you anymore, and they'll turn around and walk away. But it is a fact that in antiquity, um, and I wasn't the one who discovered this. Sir Richard Burton uh, was himself. He was a British knight um, who was also a classicist, and he and an author. And he discovered, and I helped rediscover, the act of sacred sodomy. And that was, believe it or not, they had a ritual in which a, a priestess would insert a medicated phallus. So this is a, a, a real-sized, you could call it a, a modern, uh, uh, we call it a dildo. Um, in antiquity, it was a, a, an alabastron. So this is a, this is a phallic-shaped object. It's a, it's a dildo, essentially. And you cover this thing with um, medicines. And you can insert this into the anus of a man in a ritual 
in which the drugs that are on there will be applied to him while his prostate is being stimulated and he's going through the process of ejaculate, or arousing himself and ejaculating. And this form of sodomy was used. It's important because it was actually used by early female physicians to apply medicine to men. So it had been used ritually like this in, in these rituals, but it also goes so far back as to be just a rudimentary medical instrument created by women who would use it on penetrating men. So, Well, and, and, and was the practical point of it that the ointments would be better absorbed that way? Because if it went right. through, if the stuff going through the stomach, um, you know, the stomach acids um, might, uh, you know, uh, de- dissolve the power of the medicine. So it's like a suppository in a sense. Correct. It's exactly a suppository. And the physicians even wrote about how you can put some things, you can swallow some things, and they don't work. So they knew that there was something that was happening in the, in the digestive tract that was destroying the medicine. So it was a way to get the medicine. Now, what, what it appears like, Karen, is that the, uh, this device developed from a strictly feminine application of the drug. So maybe some of the reason that we're finding, you know, our oldest statues are all dildos. I don't know if you knew that. It's, it's, it's either fertility deities or dildos. And what is so amazing is this stuff... We may be looking at it from kind of a warped Christian perspective, where we're looking at the device strictly as a sexual, pleasurable thing, which undoubtedly it had that element to them in antiquity. They don't scoff at that. But at the same time, we're poo-pooing an actual medical device that may have been the very catalyst that created Western uh, drugs and, and, and pharmacy, pharmacology. And the use, I mean, it's amazing. But the fact that we don't understand these things, we won't even talk about it, Karen, because we have to talk about sacred sodomy. And why can't we talk about sodomy? Well, well, again, it goes back to, you know, the sexual taboos, you know, and it goes back to the taboos about uh, sacred hallucinogens, too. Uh, I mean, there, there are just some things um, society has rendered off limits and, um, you know, for, for good or for bad, you know, and maybe well, in see, this case bad because – go ahead. That's my job, Karen, exactly what you're saying. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's my job, what you said. My job is to ask those questions. There's a reason for those que- There's a reason that those things happened. Why can we ask questions about some things but not about others? Right. Well, I agree. I mean, I totally agree. You know, I'm the one that, you know, if they tell me not to look behind the door, I'm going to look behind the door. If they tell me not to read that book or see that movie, I want to know why. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, I mean, what are they trying to keep from me and why? You know, I mean, are we not all adults, for heaven's sake? I mean, why should someone decide, um, you know, and, you know and, and who says who decides what, what is appropriate for us to, uh, to, to, to know or not? You know, I mean, look, it, I, I think for me, as soon as, I, as soon as I came to the point in life when, when I understood that the sacred feminine and the idea of goddess was kept from me, that sort of opened the floodgates. 
You know, that made me look at so many things from a different perspective because, you know, it, 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 you know, it's for someone's agenda. How does it benefit the people who are keeping the information from you? I mean, look, we have to rely on hackers today. We have to rely on WikiLeaks to tell us what our own government is doing. You know, and I, so I, I don't know if, if that's the tie-in with this, uh, but I can see the parallel, you know, that, you know, people trying to keep, uh, keep information from us for whatever their reason is, whether it's because, you know, they uh, have a stick up their butt, <laughs> uh, pun intended, <laughs> I guess, um, you know, <laughs> um, or, um, you know, or, or they, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, just the, you know, the sexual taboos, or they don't want us to know things because they want to keep us in the dark to be able to control us. Well, that's what I was interested in. I, as I started studying taboo subjects, and people started looking at me funny when I started talking about things that were that were not normally talked about, uh, like drugs, starting to talk about drugs in, in history. When I started to do that, Karen, uh, I realized there the more taboo things you study from history, the more you realize there's a pattern or there's a reason to the rhyme of why things are taboo. And so I got interested early because I, I, I was looking at stuff that I was getting access through the prostitutes. Like what did the prostitutes in antiquity think about X, Y, and Z? What did they do? And as soon as I started looking into that, I realized there is a movement, there is a natural historical movement that's occurred in Western history over and over again against the female perception of reality, against the, I would call it the female perspective and that always manifests itself in some kind of penetration, anxiety, some kind of sexual uh, dominant, some sort of rape-like fantasy. It always manifests itself. And, you know, the more I studied what was taboo, the more I realized what those early Greco-Roman religions, those mystery religions were trying to do. They constantly take everything out of view and focus exclusively on that female perspective, that woman's opinion, right? And I'm not saying they said every, mm -hmm. woman's opinion is, every woman's opinion is good. What I'm saying is they said there is a strength to the female perspective that is necessary and essential to create and to preserve life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that, it's funny and that, that all, all of those... All of those taboo things, Karen, are all – they all have an anti-woman, an anti-feminine, an anti-female uh, uh, approach. They all, they all have an anti-female prong. Do you know what I mean? Well, and, and I wonder if, uh, if a, you know, a, 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 a thing that is going on in contemporary society, I mean, the way the right wing constantly wants to control women's sexuality, if that's not another symptom of that. It's definitely, it's definitely matches up to what was done in, say, the third and fourth centuries. And you talked about Hypatia uh, uh, at the beginning, and you're going to want to talk more about her. But it's very much the same the same response. It is a response against feminine wisdom. And the, the, for all their faults, the Greeks figured out one thing. The goddess of wisdom is a woman. I mean, the god of wisdom, you know, the, the deity that is wisdom is a woman. And they preserved that mm -hmm. tradition. So you can say mm -hmm. what you want about 
the patriarchy, but they preserved in their own myth things that would would assist us in society in keeping ourselves free. And I'm sure that's why Thomas Jefferson said uh, the classics are so important, and why he, he composed Greek poetry all the time. You know, to him that was uh, that that was everything. So speaking of uh you know of of controversial things and stuff they don't want us to talk about or know about um you know we we have to talk about Jesus with the naked boy in the garden how does that tie into all of this Yeah you know if your teachers of of history are not telling you about Jesus and the naked boy in the garden they're not doing their job and that's because in the book of Mark Mark 14:51 and 52 we see twice rendered uh, a naked boy in the garden, or depicted a naked boy in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus when he's arrested, right? So this is late in the morning, somewhere between like 2 and 4 in the morning, and it's a public park, and Jesus is caught there, and he's got a naked boy with him. Well, that naked boy, if you go back and you read that text and you're surprised, as everybody I talk to about this is, that in fact that naked boy is there, then um, you want to know why. And it's not important why. You're never going to find out why. At least, I, you know, I don't think there's enough evidence to ever say why the kid was there. But the fact that we don't want to look at questions like that is mm-hmm. very telling about where we are as a society. Yeah. Yeah, well, in in because the fact that we don't have the courage to take things out and look at them, um, I think that says maybe your point um, is that depending on the agenda of the status quo or the power of the people in charge, um, they will allow us to take less and less things out to look at. Uh, more and more things become taboo, just like uh, taking, you know, just like Medea and looking at how greed is destroying the world. We can't take that out and look at that now either. Is that the whole point? Correct. Yes, it is. And, Karen, it's not a conspiracy either. It's it's not like people intentionally sit around and plan for these things. This repeatedly happens because as people are willing to say, hey, we are willing to sacrifice whatever we need to for the sake of profit, then we can cut off certain branches. And as soon as you start saying that profit is there, it's just a natural consequence to say, well, we don't need classics departments. Let's cut those. Or we don't need humanities department. Let's cut those. It, universities now are all about image. I heard this constantly as uh, uh, when I taught, and any time I went to any sort of uh, uh, official gathering, I always heard about image, and it's business talk. It's marketing. How do we market the university? And they're so afraid about marketing. So everything that you do or say, if it's going to come off in a way that, that doesn't look uh, nice for their marketing, it gets cut. And so that's why you see, the, you see the promotion. You see the promotion of things like sports because those are income-generating branches of the university. And you see the demotion or the, or, or, or the depredation, the, the, the gutting of programs that are, meant, that are just knowledge-based programs. Right, um, and right. It, so well, it's I not mean, like it's a conspiracy, a- but it's a – go ahead. 
Well, well, and we see all the time that women's studies gets cut, uh, black history, but you know, black studies gets cut. I know there was, uh, I remember there was this big article in Arizona. They were cutting, uh, they were cutting the programs of like indigenous people, the, you know, the brown mm-hmm. skin people, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, in, indigenous Americans and, um, you know, Hispanics and things like that. You know, right, uh, religion it, courses it, it, and whatnot. Well, or or even uh, you know, it it reminds me of uh, you know, it's it's Texas that decides what goes in the history books, and of course Texas is conservative, and they wanted to keep stuff out of the history books, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, because you know Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, says too many things that aren't in alignment with conservative politics, or they wanted to keep the um, accomplishments of uh, Black Americans out of the history books. So, uh, I mean, this this is a slippery slope, you know. I mean, this is this is dangerous, and um, I guess um, you know you sh- you should care about uh, you know you should care about what your kids are learning, and not just care if your kids uh, are getting a degree. I mean, wouldn't you say? Yes, and that's the problem that I encountered, even with parents at uh, the university at St. Mary's University. The concern is not the the well-roundedness or the the strength of the education. The concern is whether or not the per, uh, student is going to get their certificate that will enable them to then go do X in a very functional, in a very utilitarian, in a very non-academic or non-university uh, uh, approach. So the businesses that are overtaking and 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 changing the university, those businesses sense this very weakness in the student body themselves, and they pander to this. Everything, Karen, becomes about the money. And when it becomes about money, then you can no longer teach. We're lost. We can't teach these voices. But I, I, you can see I'm passionate about it because, uh, uh, to me, it's what kept the ancient world and its principles alive. It's what preserved democracy and and right. we see that just yeah it it feels like it's slipping away um well and and also too i mean it feels to me that there's almost um you know anti-intellectualism uh by some people i i mean i've said it before and i'll probably say it a million more times it's almost as if it's a badge of honor you know, uh, the anti-intellectualism. There's this resentment of people with a well-rounded intellect, I think. Um, I mean, people actually uh, see it, it doesn't bother them that, uh, you know, they have no intellectual curiosity, you know. Um, it, that, con- that concerns me greatly, I have to say, you know. I mean, this dumbing down of America, uh, it, it's a scary thing. And isn't that one of your isn't that one of your kind of main thrusts in having some of the speakers that you do is that you're trying to say look you know you've you've got to wake up and take it in your own your your enlightenment Karen which I, which is what I guess we call when you kind of woke up to the truth of your own religious background and you were kind of that you said that was liberating right and that liberation that 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 freeing is that very spirit of education that we talk about from antiquity it's that it's that ability to break the chains of tyranny and i think this is why maybe 
some of the feminists uh, have, have responded to me negatively because I keep saying, look, they were breaking their chains. Okay, you're putting them back on. Get them off and look at what they were actually doing and support that. Don't, don't turn around and say we have to create an image in order to make something ugly so we can say, look, run from this. And I think that, right. you know, just, just look at the evidence, Karen. And when, when you see that, how much women have, have impacted society, it's, it's ridiculous for us to say, hey, let's bury our heads in. Well, and, and you know, speaking of that, speaking to the liberation, you know, you you uh, you know, as you were kind of describing, you know, I was kind of doing a gut check as as you were saying that, and I think for myself, um, just using myself as an example, I, I'm sure this applies to other people. Once you feel that liberation, then it makes it very hard for society to make you conform again. It makes you question things. You know, you aren't going to fall in line quite so easily. So they never want you to feel that liberation, you know? Um, and and I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I, I'm surprised. Uh, well, I'm not going to go there. But, you know, I, I guess I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, you know? I, I guess it's once you get the taste of, uh, of seeing things differently, um, you know, a, a, maybe it puts you on the fringe of mainstream society, but I would rather be on the fringe than some conformist who's going to fall in line uh, and just be one of the sheep. Well, you wouldn't have a program if you weren't, and a successful program if you weren't uh, challenging and if you weren't saying, hey, we need to stand. I mean, that's all you do essentially, isn't it, is ask questions. Well, yeah, and I mean, and talk about things and people uh, that uh, can't get a platform uh, out there in the rest of the world because for some reason um, it's heretical, it's uh, nonconformist, it's not, uh, it doesn't promote the status quo. It's it's uh, it's about a new normal. It's about a different way of thinking, a new way of thinking. You know, uh, a way of thinking that would benefit all of us instead of just the few. Um, so, so yeah, I guess it's heretical, revolutionary. It's, uh, you know, you might even say it's uh, anarchist, I guess. It depends mm-hmm. on who you're talking to. But, look, Jesus, you know, Jesus would have been considered a terrorist, you know? Well, exactly. Not, not only that, but he, he uh, I can vouch for the Greek that there are so many examples of things that if he saw it today, he would laugh. And, it, you know, it was things that he was completely against. And uh, personally, I think the image of him hanging out with prostitutes should be advanced. People should think to themselves, why was he hanging around with what you would consider the lowest of the low? And, 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 and why was he doing I mean, this is the kind of thing, Karen. When you talk, I asked you if you ask questions, because I think when you had your transformation uh, and when you kind of were, were, were freed from a reality that you thought, a restrictive reality that you thought was closing in, into something that was that gave you that breath of inspiration, so that you jumped on things like this show and the books that you've read. I mean, written. You know, to me, that inspiration is that very voice that they keep talking about from antiquity. That if we don't have it, you you get swallowed by tyranny. So I guess my question for right. you is, what what is it about your voice that because we are lacking, we are going to find ourselves without it in, in the midst of complete and utter tyranny. I mean, what is it about your voice? I mean, is there something about 
the way that you've been questioning what you've been questioning or the guests that you've had or the intent of questioning behind the guests? Is there something that you have that is so dreadfully dangerous to the to the tyr- to the coming tyranny? I mean, do you know what I mean? Well, uh, well, you know, I I, I think uh, I, I mean, if I understand the question, I think it's just uh, the intellectual curiosity, the willingness to look at things other people won't look at, you know, the willingness to look behind that closed door, uh, to take things out and examine them, no matter um, what you find, you know, because I would certainly rather know the truth than live some lie. I mean, I think that's go. really what it boils down to. And you know that courage that you, it, when I hear your voice, all I can hear is courage. That's that feminine virtue, right? Courage is an ancient feminine virtue. Most people don't realize that. Ma- manifested in Athena, and that's why I like that you picked that warrior goddess song tonight, because that is courage. The very fact that you would, n- nothing of what you're doing, Karen, it, you are doing to promote your own welfare. You are doing what you are doing because you are asking questions that you believe important for society and important on the on on the stage of life isn't that what right. any priestess isn't that what any priestess must be doing and maybe that's why their world fought against greed and beat it a few times and why they said if you don't have women like this you're going down well, and I mean, and that's why I do the show. I mean, obviously, the show makes me no money. I mean, you know, I have to pay to put the show on the air and give people a platform for to share their, their wisdom and their knowledge. But I consider it an obligation. I consider it a service to the community. You know, um, it, that's what a priestess does, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether you stand in front of, a, you know, your congregation and you lead them in a ritual or you have a radio show, it's just different forms of priestessing, ministering, service to the community. And, you know, fortunately, you know, some of my listeners value the show enough that they help with donations, you know, to help pay for it, you know. Um, uh, But uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I I, I am dedicated to this, and it's certainly not about, uh, it's certainly not about the money, you know. It is is about uh, reshaping our psyches, uh, because I believe, you know, until we can imagine things, envision things, we can't manifest those things. And we certainly need, um, we, we need an evolution. You know, we, we need to re, uh, you know, we, re, we need to reshape society uh, so that it benefits all of us. And, uh, um, and we do have to look at the past, you know. I mean, the past is a, is a wonderful indicator of uh, how things will go if you do X, Y, or Z, I think. Because uh, human nature is human nature, whether we're talking about antiquity or today. I mean, I think you've proven that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a self-driving machine that if you don't understand how it works, you're going to end up doing what is done every time. If you don't listen to the Karens out there who are not talking about, who are not trying to get profit, they are trying to tell you something based upon their own beliefs in this higher beauty. And it's, you know, the Greeks said there's, human beings can only take two, one of two pathways. You can either follow what is expedient or you can follow what is beautiful, right? So you can either do what's right or you can do what's going to cause you the least resistance and will help you out in the end. And, Karen, I think the difference between the modern university philosophy, at least the one I experienced at St. Mary's University, is that 
they follow, they have chosen a path of expedience. And if you want to choose what's beautiful over that, you will get squashed. That is not a society or a system that will flourish. That's not a form of education. I'm arguing, you know what I'd like to argue to your, to, with your audience? I'd like to propose this. America's university system is in collapse. I'll say that one more time just to make it, I, I, just to make it clear as I possibly can. The American university system is in collapse. So as things get worse and worse, and finally we acknowledge there's a problem with it, maybe somebody will look back and say, well, in 2016, this nut said uh, things were going south, and maybe they did. Well, uh, well, I mean, look at demo- I mean, look at our uh, our um, our election system. Uh, look at journalism on television. Uh, I, I mean, so much of everything I think is there. Um, and uh, you know, we'll we'll have to see how this all shakes out. Well, well, David, for for anyone who might want to follow uh, where this uh, court case of yours is going, um, is is there a way to know? Um, or will you come back on the show after it's resolved and, and tell us what the outcome was? You, you know, when St. Mary's, when this broke, St. Mary's was voted to be one of the top ten um, violators of free speech in the country. So the universities are ranked upon, uh, you know, violations of free speech. And they made it within the top ten. And because they did, they made it into a bunch of media. And so this case, if it uh, uh, if you do hear about it, um, you'll probably hear about it in the media because people, people, Karen, are starting to take stock of what's wrong as it's reflected in, in the pol- I think, in the politics and in just society in general. And so the, the, I think you're going to see this in the future, and it, I would be happy to come on any time, but I won't do so as long as I don't find some great tabooed thing from the ancient world uh, that I can talk about now. And I want your audience to know that I'm compiling all of the references to the sibling oracles, and I'm going to try to ferret out the earliest song of Western society, the song of the Sibla Kumai, which is, uh, uh, which is kind of the guiding song of Western civilization. So, I'm, uh, you know, we have to keep pushing, and we have to keep letting people know uh, uh, about antiquity. We can't stop. If you can fire me and silence me, then you're not, your child is doomed. I, I'm telling you that. Your, child, your child's education is doomed unless your teachers are free. And when you get fired for presenting antiquity to people, you, you know you're not free. Right. Right, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I started realizing that when I heard Richard Wolf say that, you know, uh, no teacher could teach about socialism and expect to get tenure. You know, that's why right. everybody in the country country thinks democratic socialism is a bad thing, you know, because uh, capitalists have spun it that way so that people don't even know what's better for their own economic interest, you know. Right, right. Um, I, I, Karen, well, I, had, I had a – can I just say one last thing? Sure, sure. I had a friend, a colleague, who went and lived in Lebanon in a refugee camp with Palestinian women for like six months. And I can tell you for a fact, she was discriminated against because of her willingness to help 
Palestinian women, just women in general, who were refugees. And she was discriminated against because of their background and their religion and because of who they, they are as a people and what they represent on the socio-political stage. And when I saw that, I said, you, you see, the oracles were right. You either stand for what is beautiful, which she was standing for, or you stand for what's expedient. And that's what the administrations are doing now. Yeah. Yeah, well, we see it all over, you know, and I mean, as far as the Israel-Palestine thing, I mean, there was just an article about how we gave millions to Israel and cut aid to Palestine, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, things things are a mess. And, and, and even with the election right now, I mean, the whole idea of hold your nose and vote, I mean, that's doing what's expedient rather than thinking long term, you know, rather than doing what's right. Um, uh, and that's a whole other topic, you know, for another show. But uh, but I, I can't help but feel that falls into that, uh, you know, in, in, into that uh, example, you know, of, uh, of people yeah. are just out there doing what's expedient rather than doing what's right. And that's how I we've agree. gotten to where we are. You know, that's how we've gotten to where we are with so many things. You know, um, because it's hard. It's hard to take a stand. It's hard to do what uh, do the right thing. You know, it's easier to cut corners. And uh, anyway, well, David, um, it, it's about time for us to wrap. I have to do a few things bef- uh, before the show ends tonight. Is there anything you'd like to uh, close with that maybe I've forgotten to ask you, or something you feel is important? You know, I just want your audience to know uh, that I. I, uh, I am constantly impressed with the fact that this, despite everything that's going on and the direction that things seem to be going, that people do understand and reach out for this. They re- I think they want to be educated, Karen. And I think what you're doing is kind, kind of a service to, to the country in that way, for which you'll never be rewarded and for which you'll never be honorably mentioned. But at the same time, uh, you know, thanks for allowing me, a crazy guy, to get on your stage and to be able to, to address your audience. I, I truly appreciate that. And the last thing I'll say is um, if we do find our tyrant, <laughs> watch out because <laughs> it's not going to be good. <laughs> Well, you know, David, thank you, too. Thank you for having courage. Uh, I mean, the fact that, you know, you would pass up uh, a million dollars if it meant, uh, you know, you had to give up your free speech and be gagged. Uh, I mean, that's uh, that's integrity. Uh, not, you know, not very many people, uh, you know, would, uh, would, would take that road. They would probably take the money and say, screw it, you know. Um, and, uh, and I know you have kids, you know, and you have to worry about taking care of them and their future and so it's got to be a tough decision for you but uh, you know you have always been willing to speak truth to power and I respect that Um, so thank you for what you're doing and um, you know I just wish you well and I hope it I I, I hope you know because if you win we win you know Mm -hmm. so I I, I hope you win and um, keep in touch with me and let me know how it's all going and I'll share it with listeners or you can come back on and tell them yourself I will, Karen, and and thank you for the honor tonight, and there's great, I want you to know there's great honor in what you're doing. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and uh, may the muses smile down at me and bestow their grace upon me and you and everybody else out there who's trying to make a better world. Exactly. 
All right. Well, thank you, David. Uh, be well, and um, let's hope this comes to a quick conclusion and uh, you can go back to some normalcy in your life. Thank you, Karen. You're welcome. Good night. Good night. Well, listeners, um, uh, yeah, I think we did uh, take the conversation full circle by the end. Uh, Our topic tonight was what does the ancient Sybil say about your vote? Uh, You know, maybe vote was just a metaphor for the choices we make, Uh, you know, not just who we vote for, but uh, are we taking the expedient path or are we taking the right path? So, no, we didn't just talk about politics. Um, We're talking about patriarchy and capitalism, uh, how they've been tightened the screws in areas you might not be aware of. And uh, David's been in the thick of it, carrying the torch for our freedom, you know, as he fights the forces that have been trying to thwart uh, truth and free speech. So uh, thank thank you, David. I uh, I told you that I hoped you would stay with me after the interview uh, because I wanted to tell you about this wonderful movie that uh, I stumbled onto. It uh, was playing here in Los Angeles for just about a week. Uh, it was called The Complete Unknown, uh, and it starred Rachel Weiss, the woman who uh, played the part of Hypatia in the movie Agora. And uh, it was... Uh, in- very interesting, interesting storyline. It was about a woman who kept reinventing herself. Uh, she was a piano, she was a child prodigy, a piano prodigy, I guess you call it. Uh, you know, she could have, you know, gone on and been a great pianist, and that was the life that was before her. But she didn't want that life, and she didn't know why, but it just didn't feel right to her. And so I think after she left college, uh, she was uh, went on a trip to Mexico by herself, and uh, she's sitting in a bus with a, uh, another young woman, and they strike up a conversation, and the, the uh, Mexican woman asked her what her name was. And, well, her name was Jennifer, I believe, and Jennifer doesn't really translate well into Spanish. So instead of uh, saying Jennifer, she made up the name Consuelo and told the girl her name was Consuelo instead of Jennifer. And so uh, it was a long bus ride, and, you know, they struck up a friendship, and, uh, you know, conversation went well, and, you know, they became uh, fast friends. And the the Mexican girl asked Jennifer if, uh, rather than staying, you know, at a hotel while she was in Mexico, why didn't she just come stay with her family? Well, she did. And um, so instead of just naming herself or renaming herself Consuelo, she also created a new persona as to who she was and she did this about nine times in her life and they briefly showed you in her different I guess you might call them incarnations Uh, she was a biologist she was a nurse she was a kind of a hippie girl Uh, she did a lot of different things and um and it was very interesting because in the movie they showed you uh, she ends up at a dinner party Uh, uh, she finagled an invitation to this dinner party because uh, an old friend of hers was there, uh, a man who was important to her, um, you know, in her her authentic life, you know, back when she was on the road to being a pianist. And um, he was uh, introduced to her by one of her current names. 
but it didn't seem right to him. He thought he recognized her. And she at first tried to pretend she was um, her current incarnation, but then he got her alone and said, look, uh, I see through this. I know uh, you are Jennifer, and why are you doing this? Why are you pretending to be someone else? And... um, it, she, so she told her story, and she told about how, um, how exhilarating it was, how empowering it was to be able to start anew, to become a whole new person and start a new life. And, um, you know, it wasn't like she was married or had kids or anything like that. You know, she was sort of a single woman alone out there in the world, and, you know, she would just go from persona to persona. Well, um, it, it was hard for her her, uh, her her gentleman friend to understand uh, until uh, he thought about the dilemma he was in, and um, and his dilemma was this: uh, him and his girlfriend they lived in New York, and his girlfriend just got an opportunity to move to Los Angeles where she could pursue the career of her dreams. And he was in a dilemma. He could either go with her, uh, you know, pull up his roots in New York and go with her to Los Angeles, or they were facing the, you know, the potential of their relationship splitting up. And, you know, so he started to take stock of his career. And he realized for the last 13 years or so, uh, he, he didn't really accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. He was kind of just doing the same things over and over again and expecting to have a different result, and it wasn't happening. And having met uh, Jennifer, um, it encouraged him to try something new, uh, to uh, uproot himself uh, from uh, you know his life that uh, uh, was not really fulfilling his dreams and his desires and his expectations to uproot himself and to try something new and uh, go to Los Angeles with his um, with with his girlfriend. So I think the 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 moral of the story, if you will, uh, is about not allowing our lives to become stagnant which also reminds me of the Sistrum, which is a musical and magical um, musical instrument uh, sacred to Isis, Bast, and Hathor. You know, Herodotus said when you shook the Sistrum, the rattle-like instrument, if you, when you shook the Sistrum, it, uh, or when the goddesses shook the Sistrum, more likely, it kept the energies of the universe flowing so that there could be life, so there wouldn't be stagnation. And I think this girl, Jennifer, um, was sort of a force of regeneration, of transformation. Uh, this was a story about not allowing our lives to become stagnant. You know, it doesn't mean we have to uproot ourselves and create a whole new identity, but maybe it means trying new things, maybe things that we've always meant to do but haven't had time to do. Uh, Maybe it means, um, you know, reading some fresh new books with some new ideas. Uh, Maybe it means what David Hillman was talking about tonight, you know, not being afraid to take things out and look at them and ask questions. 
You know, maybe it means uh, taking a field trip and doing something new that you've never done before. Maybe it means trying yoga or going to a sound bath or going to a butterfly encounter or uh, going to the new exhibit at the museum or taking square dance lessons or, 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 whatever it is, you know. Maybe it also means taking a chance on a new job or a new relationship. So anyway, uh, the movie was called uh, A Complete Unknown, Complete Unknown. So uh, I would encourage you, if you see it in your neighborhood, um, I haven't done the movie justice with the description, uh, go, go see it. I, I think you will most definitely uh, enjoy it. Uh, and now for a word uh, from Joe Corson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of this because my mother planted. I grew out of it. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you are listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddesses Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot the film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this film provides a wonderful opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet, both for only 20 bucks, and you find it at the website DancingWithGaia.com dancingwithgaia.com so thank you Joe uh, thank you for um, running that here uh, on, on, the, on the show uh, and I hope uh, listeners will uh, take advantage of that great offer I've seen the book, I've seen the video uh, I don't think they will be disappointed in the least and before I close tonight, uh, prayers go out to my dear friends Jackie and Jenny, uh, who are almost sisters. Uh, Jenny's husband, Gene, passed away early this morning. Uh, so please, listeners, uh, if you're at your altars or, uh, you know, out under the moon or uh, someplace, uh, you know, that feels sacred, uh, please remember Jackie, Jenny, and Jean in your prayers uh, as Jean passes over and the ladies have to handle all of those things. One must manage in these difficult times of uh, transformation. So prayers for strength, compassion, and courage uh, for my dear friends. And Jean, uh, may Isis embrace Jean in her golden wings. Uh, even if he was not um, a goddess advocate, you know, he was a mason. Uh, and that's kind of kissing kin, because the Masons, uh, they love their Isis. 
So uh, to close the show tonight, uh, in honor of uh, Jackie, Jenny, and Jean, uh, I would like to read the prayer of Lucius uh, Apollias to Isis as the great goddess. And here it goes. Holiest of the holy, perpetual comfort of mankind, you whose bountiful grace nourishes the whole world, whose heart turns toward all those in sorrow and tribulation, as a mother's to her children. You who take no rest by night, no rest by day, but are always at hand to succor the distressed by land and sea, dispersing the gales that beat upon them. Your hand alone can disentangle the hopelessly knotted skeins of fate, terminate every spell of bad weather, and restrain the stars from harmful conjunction. The gods above adore you. The gods below do homage to you. You set the orb of heaven spinning around the poles. You give light to the sun. You govern the universe. You trample down the forces of Tartarus. At your voice the stars move, the seasons recur, the spirit of earth rejoice, the elements obey. At your nod the winds blow, clouds drop wholesome rain upon the earth, seeds quicken, buds swell. Birds that fly through the air, beasts that prowl on the mountains, serpents that lurk in the dust, all these tremble in a single awe of you. My eloquence is unequal to praising you as you deserve. My wealth to providing you with all the offerings I have promised. My voice to uttering all the words which could celebrate your magnificence. No, not even if I had a thousand tongues and a thousand mouths and could speak forever. Nevertheless, poor as I am, I will do as much as I can in my devotion to you. I will keep your divine countenance always before my eyes and the secret knowledge of your divinity locked deep within my heart. That's from The Golden Ass by Lucius Apollias, translated by Robert Graves. Well, thank you, my dear listeners. I hope uh, you've enjoyed the show. And... um, I will have uh, with me uh, next week um, a new guest. Uh, next week uh, we have uh, guest, uh, guesting on the show Laura Cortner and Bob Hieronymus talking about their new book on our political goddess, the Statue of Liberty. You'll learn more than you probably ever knew about the history of that statue, what she stands for, and why we call her the political goddess for our time and for our future. So, um, remembering the motto of the show, uh, we'll quote Gandhi tonight. He said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. That is the pattern I see playing out. Yep, we will eventually win with courage and tenacity and wisdom. Thank you, uh, dear listeners. Uh, You're the gas in my tank. I appreciate your um, tuning in every week. Uh, Remember our special October series, uh, Honoring the Ancestors. Uh, Be sure you click that follow button so you don't miss any of those great shows. Uh, That will do it for us tonight. Uh, We'll be back with you uh, next Wednesday. 
So uh, until then, uh, I'll just uh, give you a little bit of uh, Nomad's Land by Zingaya. Mm-hmm. 